Well, thank you very much, Alistair and, and Sir Stephen. Um, I've often thanked people for their introductory comments before, but I've rarely said, in fact, I've never said, I really would have liked to hear Sir Stephen continue and, 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 um, and, and give this talk, but I hope he'll come back um, in, in the debate that, that follows. It is, of course, an, an amazing pleasure and privilege to follow all of these right honourables and professors and generals that have, have, have given the, the Cumberland Lodge annual lecture in recent years. Um, tonight, something different. Tonight, someone once described by the Sun newspaper as the most dangerous woman in Britain. <laughs> um, barely stand above this lecture. Um, um, I think at least one of our number tonight, who I can't, yes, he's sitting over there, um, will agree that if that is truly the case, Britain must be an incredibly safe place. Um, I, I think that Cumberland Lodge, as we've just heard, um, ha has always been a place for wide-ranging but always rational debate about difficult social and, and, and ethical issues, but these adjectives are not the best to describe the current state of debate about fundamental rights and freedoms in, in Britain. Now, of course, the, 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 the ongoing struggle for rights and freedoms is probably as old as humanity. Um, but I would argue that it's this very, very special moment after World War II that is tr remains truly exceptional in, in human history because it is the moment at which various struggles against injustice, local struggles, national struggles, uh, transcend into an idea of truly universal and inalienable, fun inalienable fundamental rights and freedoms that belong to us just because we're human. Not because we're good, not because we're citizens of a particular country, not because we're members of a particular race or class or gender. Um, rights in the true sense, not privileges that can be taken away at the whim of the political community. Now, I appreciate that that is quite a hard pill for lots of people to swallow, but I would argue that this was not an ideal born out of naivety or, uh, or even pacifism. The, this generation, this post-World War II generation, had lived through the horrors and terrors of war and had a very, very strong sense of why they believed in fundamental rights and freedoms not contingent on these various characteristics, but that attract just to the human being per se. The legacy of Mrs. Roosevelt, as it has been described, is probably the Universal Declaration from the preamble. Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world, whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people, whereas it is essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. 
So that's the, just to remember the, the Universal Declaration. That's Mrs. Roosevelt's legacy. And then we have Churchill's legacy, which is the now much maligned European Convention on Human Rights of, of, of 1950, ratified by the United Kingdom, the first country to ratify that um, convention from the preamble to the convention being resolved as the governments of European countries which are like-minded and have a common heritage of political traditions, ideals, freedoms and the rule of law to take the first steps for the collective enforcement of certain of the rights stated in the Universal Declaration. Certain of the rights, not social and economic rights, you know, in, in Britain at least, that has been the business of politics and the welfare state, another proud legacy of 1945 and all that. But the fundamentals essential to democracy itself, no torture or slavery, free speech, fair trials, a little bit of personal privacy, equal treatment under the law, freedom of thought, conscience and religion, essential to democracy itself. And, of course, the United Kingdom allowed people in its territory to petition the Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg from, from 1966. Again, right up in the forefront of this movement for a system of values that, that people all over the world had been aspiring to forever and people in the world still aspire to. Look at the Arab Spring. The UK at the, at, the, at the forefront of this. And around the world, people slightly to the left of the centre and people to the right of the centre. People representative of all the great world religions and people of no religious faith at all, all coming together saying, never again. The Holocaust and the Blitz and all that. And this recognition that there are some rules of the game, that there are some non-negotiables that are essential to any idea of peace and prosperity and justice and dignity for, for, for human beings. To jump some years, we then have the legacy of um, the new Labour governments, because they have more than one government. And I would argue that the Human Rights Act of 1998 was an incredibly optimistic piece of legislation from a youthful, optimistic government that had constitutional reform as part of its agenda, and no doubt, back in 96, 97, 98, possibility of reaching out across its party to other, to others, to other liberal-minded people as well. But it, it has to be said by me, if by, if not by others, there was an, there was another agenda too, a more authoritarian <coughs> agenda that was shared by both main political parties, Mr Howard, Mr Blair, uh, an arms race on law and order, on immigration and asylum, on anti-terror policy and so on. And there is, of course, always a difficulty in putting various aspects of policy into compartments and thinking that they will not touch each other. We'll be liberal and reformist on the Constitution over here. We'll be tougher than tough on law and order over here. An inevitable tension. There it is. So this Act, Britain's modern Bill of Rights, that incorporated the Convention so that these decisions could be made by UK, judgments, UK judges in UK courts rather than left to an international court in Strasbourg. This incorporation 
passed in 1998, but delayed for two years before it could come into force. And why? Because we had to train those judges because they might not understand and they might do wicked, dangerous things and the prisons might be flung open. Anyway, two years it took and hell did not freeze over and the prisons were not emptied and so on. And the Human Rights Act of 1998, you will remember, was brought into force in October of 2000, now just you know, well over 10 years ago. And it was met with an immediate onslaught by various newspapers who believed that there would be rape on demand and that prisoners would walk free and that all sorts of wicked things would happen. But there was clearly an understandable concern about the development of Article 8 of the Convention, the right to respect for private life that protects everyone because a little bit of privacy is part of basic human dignity and intimacy and trust and so on. It's a difficult balancing act, but nonetheless one understands why this is a perennial concern for newspaper editors with declining circulations um, in in the context of some of the, the stories that the public are interested in and that sell newspapers. It was an issue then, in 2000, and of course it remains a toxic debate to this day. And in the years that followed, notwithstanding, I think, a great piece of reformist legislation, a great piece of reformist legislation that repatriated uh, judicial power from an international court to domestic courts, not just to courts, to every police station and every classroom and every newsroom in the land, notwithstanding that, that ideal of bringing rights home, a convention that, whose principal architects had been conservative British politicians, advocated for in Europe because Britain was the oldest unbroken democracy and because people like Churchill knew that if these new post-war democracies were going to prosper in Europe, they needed some of the traditions and rights and values that we'd enjoyed in Britain for so long. Notwithstanding that, I'm afraid that there are inevitable tensions between tough law and order and tough asylum and tough anti-terror policy and respect for rights and freedoms and the rule of law. And some of those, even who were the political parents of the Human Rights Act, some of those, even who were the architects of that project, um, did not act as its best friends in those early years. Further, there were attacks, as there had been under previous governments, on judges, on lawyers, on legal aid. And legal aid is an important part of this story. Because access to justice is the bridge between civil and political rights in this country and the welfare state. People forget that in addition to our schools and our hospitals that we love in Britain so much, that we want accessible to all people, it is important that we live in a country where if you were accused of a ter terrible crime, you will be represented regardless of your means. 
If you're about to lose your home or your children and you cannot afford advice or representation, that should be provided for you. And that without that kind of provision, laws, however impeccable, fundamental rights and freedoms will remain inaccessible illusions. The law will be a closed book, not a living letter. And of course, what this meant, a tax on legal aid and dwindling legal aid in this particular climate, was that in the absence of any real public education, let alone celebration of this new modern Bill of Rights that we ought to have been celebrating, was that the public's understanding of the Human Rights Act came mediated by a combination of litigation in the courts reported in the tabloid media in particular. And those who were able to bring cases under the Human Rights Act essentially fell into two categories. The super-rich, who could afford their injunctions and their actions to protect their privacy or their reputation and so on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, the criminal defendants or the absolute destitute asylum seekers. And increasingly, over recent years, people of modest or moderate means the hairdresser, the taxi driver, even some people on benefits would not qualify for legal aid. (coughs) So absent any public education about this modern Bill of Rights that's supposed to be owned by anyone, the only human rights narrative in the public consciousness is newspaper stories about terror suspects and prisoners on the one hand criminal defendants relying on their human rights to protect themselves and on the other hand the super rich protecting movie stars and football players and some protecting their privacy what kind of narrative how on earth was an infant bill of rights supposed to take root in that context and to make matters worse I always cheer people up, don't I? It's a lovely sunny sunny evening outside. It's raining in here. Um, To make matters worse. So we've got this problem with legal aid. We've got this distorted narrative about who can actually enforce their rights and freedoms in the courts, as reported by the media. We've got authoritarian politics across the board, an arms race, who's going to be tougher on criminals, all sorts of very, very authoritarian measures. And then 11 months after the implementation of the Human Rights Act, 9-11, the Twin Towers atrocity, a human rights atrocity that shook the world. And the understandable spasm from the United States that spread, understandably, to the United Kingdom and across the world, at a time when the Infant Human Rights Act is toddling to its feet and the public barely know about it, let alone understand that it is for everyone. It is for victim and accused. It is for everyone. Not the easiest early history of a modern Bill of Rights that wasn't born out of revolution and out of struggle. You could argue it was a liberal conspiracy, it was a nice idea for you know, people in progressive politics, but never sold, never explained to the people that it ought to be protecting. That's the start. Which begs the question, why do this at all?
Why human rights at all? Why can't we just leave everything to the business of politics and we'll all just have debates and we'll vote and we'll decide what policy should be? Why should there be any concept of anything that's untouchable or special or sacred or worthy of greater consideration? Why human rights at all? Isn't it a nonsense or nonsense on stilts? Well, I think that essentially there are two arguments why one should believe in any concept of of fundamental human rights at all. Now, the first comes particularly easily to people of faith, but not exclusively. This is is an argument that's founded in the idea of human dignity or sometimes of spirituality. It's the idea that there's something special about all of us. Slightly arrogant, if you like, but there it is. There is something so special about humanity, each and every one of us is entitled to protection. Not because we're good, not because we're bad, not because we're British, not because we're French, not because we're men or women or we've paid our taxes or we've done anything worth anything, just because we're born. And as I said, ironically, though though we're often told that people of faith are the great enemies of liberal and progressive values, I have found in my work at Liberty that often this is an argument that resonates very readily with with people of faith. Not exclusively, but this idea of something inalienably special about a human being that they're entitled to some protection just for being alive. Now that's not going to work with everyone say, Professor Dawkins or, you know, the mad mullers of aggressive secularism and, and they're entitled to their view. So, so if you don't think that human beings are special, they're just more developed than other beings and, you know, why humans are not another species, that argument arguably doesn't work. But I think there's another argument if you are a Democrat. And this is an argument about democracy itself and how it sustains, which makes me think again of Sir Stephen's introduction. It seems to me that without some notion of fundamental rights and freedoms protected in the end by referees, independent referees called judges, working within a system called the rule of law, democracy will not sustain. It will not sustain for more than a fraction of a second in the context of the human experience. Let me put it this way. Think of of markets. We know that they can be up and down. I was always taught that markets must be free and unregulated and bankers could always be trusted. Don't make cheap shots. It seems to me that, and I know nothing about economics, I'm speaking completely as a layperson, that if you want a market economy, you have to have some rules of the game. At the very least, you have to have criminal law to stop people robbing each other. You probably need civil law to bind them to the contracts that they strike with each other, the bargains that they strike with each other. Otherwise, what market? And in truth, in a complex modern economy, you need a lot more rules besides to stop monopolies, eating the market, to stop the market eating itself, etc., etc. Now, if that is true of the market, think about democracy itself. We heard Sir Stephen's 
introduction. We don't even have to go as far back as Nazi Germany. Even in my lifetime, around the world, we have seen democracies eat themselves. We have seen people come to power with a popular majority and a massive mandate, a great, a great emotive movement of support, and you are the great leader in this context, and you, after a while, think that, you know, those tedious newspapers that criticise me need to be just kind of shut down a little bit. And those pesky police officers and judges that sometimes come after my people, as well as the real criminals, they, they really need to be put back in their box. And before you know it, you've arrested your opponents and you've censored the critical press. And perhaps you've even delayed those elections for a couple of years because we are living in a permanent emergency, are we not? That is my regulatory argument for human rights. Without those rules of the game, without those referees, democracy will not sustain. It will be over. So that's the argument, as best as I can put it, for the notion of human rights itself. But what about the much maligned Human Rights Act? If you read certain newspapers, you're not going to admit it in this polite company, but some of you do. You would think that the Human Rights Act was in the dock every day of the week. And what are the arguments against it? Just let's remind ourselves of the actual contents, the right to life, the right against torture and human degrading treatment, right against slavery, habeas corpus, the right against arbitrary detention or the right to liberty, the right to a fair trial, the right to respect for your private and family life, <coughs> freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Freedom of speech and expression, freedom of association, and crucially, I would argue, freedom from discrimination in the application of these rights and freedoms, because it seems to me that equal treatment is the hardest, the hardest principle to actually live by them, but the most important of all. Charge number one on the indictment, it's imposed on us by Europe. It's imposed on us by those wicked old European... Now, now, of course, some of this is about confusion between the Council of Europe and the European Union, etc., etc., but without getting into all of that defensive nonsense. Quite the contrary, quite the reverse. This project was a British project. I don't say that triumphalistically, I don't say that nationalistically, I don't say that these values are uniquely British, but what a long British tradition and what a great British project after World War II to have the foresight to see that you are less likely to have another Holocaust or a Blitz if these values can become part of the culture and the legal system of a new democratic community within Europe, if not in the wider world. Hence Churchill, hence David Maxwell Fife, and hence that, that project very, very, very early on. And if I'm wrong about that, and it is some great European conspiracy, how on earth do you support a Eurosceptic position by saying that we should scrap the, the Human Rights Act, which allows British judges 
sitting close to home in British courts to adjudicate on the difficult balance between someone's privacy and someone's free speech and so on. Why not let them do it? Why scrap the Human Rights Act to turn the Strasbourg International Court into the court of first instance for any human rights dispute in Britain? What an absolute nonsense, it seems to me. Charge number two, it protects the unworthy. It protects people who are not worthy of protection, in particular bad people and foreigners. And that's a Venn diagram, and many are in both categories. Prisoners, foreign, foreign prisoners are particular. You understand. Well, now, now, this is a difficult one because, yes, to some extent it does. I mean, it, it, you know, it does what it says on the tin. It's, this is human rights for human beings, not rights for good people or people who are deemed good for the moment or worthy, and not rights for freeborn Englishmen, but human rights for human beings. Pretty self-explanatory. But to, to unpack this a little... We have to remember that all of the rights and freedoms, except for torture and slavery, are qualified or balanced against, in particular, the rights and freedoms of other people, including to be protected from, from, from crime and so on. And this is a modern Bill of Rights that recognises that we are social creatures. We're not, no one's an island. We live in, in, in units of other human beings beings. We, that's why family life is recognised, because most of us have some notion of rubbing along with other people that we call our family. That's why you protect freedom of association. That is why there is a concept running right through the Convention and the Human Rights Act of what is necessary in a democratic society, where we come together as social creatures to, to do the best we can to rub along together. But it has to be admitted, and I put my hands up to the idea that any notion of universal and fundamental human rights has to rest on a premise that no one is ever completely robbed of their humanity and that interferences with these balanced rights and you can interfere with people's privacy and their speech and their liberty and so on but, but when you do you have to justify it and the interference has to be proportionate so a rationality, a reason, has to be imposed on people in power before they deal with whoever it is that is wicked or foreign or both. Yes. But that's not such a bad civilising concept, I, I, I would argue. Of course, this came to a head recently, in recent months, during the prisoner voting row. Is that familiar to some of you? That was not my best week or two at work. I felt my age a couple of months ago, the prisoner voting row. Senior politicians have crossed the political spectrum admitting to feeling physically sick. Physically sick. Not just in violent disagreement, but physically sick. You know, nauseous. They need stronger stomachs, is all I can say. <laughs> So physically sick. Why physically sick? Physically sick at two ideas. One is unelected judges. Unelected judges. We'll return to that one. Unelected judges with their mad ideas. And secondly, the idea of prisoners getting to vote at all. And, and um, 
I was having a tough time at work and looking probably a bit tired and middle-aged one morning at breakfast and my now nine-year-old, then eight-year-old, said to me, Mum, how are things at work? Because <laughs> small talk is the new thing, you know. Small talk when you're eight. It's, Mum, how are, things at, how are things at liberty? Well, they've been better to tell you the truth. There's a massive row about whether prisoners should get the vote or not. And... Um, some people, including senior ministers, say that when you commit a criminal offence and you go to prison, you lose all of your human rights. That's it. And my son said to me, and he doesn't always respond this way, I might add. My son, he's, he's no Socrates. Actually, Socrates was probably no Socrates. But <laughs> so my, my son turned to me and said, that can't be true, can it, Mum? Because we don't believe in the death penalty anymore. Exactly so. Exactly so. Of course you don't lose all of your human rights when you go to prison and nobody in the cabinet and nobody in the opposition and not that many people that you would ever have this debate with in a taxi or on the street or in the newsagent actually believe that you lose all of your human rights when you go to prison. That prisoners should be tortured or degraded, or even killed. So we can have the debate about the death penalty if we really need to go back there in 2011. This isn't the United States, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. The second argument against this proposition that the Human Rights Act is wicked because bad people and foreigners <coughs> um, are protected to some extent, a limited extent, is... To, to remind you all, to remind us all, that in the Convention there are positive protections for victims of crime that never existed before in this jurisdiction and across Europe to, to a great extent. Um, the positive rights in the Convention against death and torture and degrading treatment and in, in relation to protection of people's private life have led to new sex offences that didn't exist before have led to procedural protections for victims of crime in court, have led to inquests that would never have happened before for the families of victims of crime, and a right of redress for, for, for people, including victims and their families, against negligent law enforcement or inadequate law enforcement. Two examples of this Rape victims, first of all, until actions in the Court of Human Rights, it was common for rape victims to be cross-examined in person by the defendants that they accuse. This happened at the Old Bailey, sometimes for days on end. People were, you know, traditionally in this country, and for laudable reason, entitled to have the representation of their choice, including to represent themselves. And this led to many a subsequently convicted rapist cross-examining and degrading the victim all over again, but for days on end. And it's difficult for a judge. You've got to give this person lat some latitude. They're not a lawyer. They've got to represent themselves. And it went on and on and on until actions in the wicked old court of human rights that said that even this right to representation of your choice had to be balanced 
with the need to protect victims from, from this experience. And I've just got to tell you briefly a fascinating story that fits into this kind of media, this media debate about the Human Rights Act just being for wicked people. Some years ago, a man called Anthony Rice was released from prison in circumstances where the parole board had not been shown all of his previous convictions. And these previous convictions were extensive and included very, very concerning convictions for sex and violence against women and children in particular. And he was released and he very promptly went on to befriend a vulnerable woman and he killed her. And the newspapers blamed the Human Rights Act because surely any lawyer representing any prisoner at a parole board must have argued something to do with his human rights because that's what they do. And the dead woman's mother, Verna Bryant, was photographed by my old friends at the Sun newspaper tearing up the Human Rights Act on the front page saying, what about my daughter's human rights? Fair point. And this led to one of the previous media storms about scrapping the human rights. This is under the last, under the last government. And they had a review and they were prompted into action because this was a massive media storm. Surely this man must have been released because of the wicked old Human Rights Act, not just because there were various screw-ups in various public authorities and previous convictions weren't put to the parole board and someone wasn't adequately supervised in the community, etc., etc. And feeling my conscience and listening to the consciences of my fellow campaigners and lawyers at Liberty, we went to see Werner Bryant, who incredibly graciously took the meeting. And we went, in some trepidation, I have to tell you, to talk to this grieving, still grieving mother and to make the case in defence of the Human Rights Act. Mrs Bryant said, I, I'm not against prisoners having human rights. I, you know, they're all people. I just don't think that this man should have been let out. And if he was let out, I think he should have been properly supervised in the community. And I just don't understand how this happened. I'd like an inquest. I'd like it to be less likely that this ever happened again to anybody else. And so we represented Mrs Bryant and we tried to get an, an inquest for her, but there was to be no inquest because the cause of death was certain. It was unlawful killing. Why would you have an inquest? Why would you have a big hoo-ha that got discovery and disclosure from various public authorities about everything they should have done and didn't do? But of course, her daughter did have human rights. Her, her right to life was protected by the Human Rights Act, and this includes the right to an adequate inquiry into an untimely death that could have been protected by the state. And just a few months ago, years after the original release from prison and murder, we managed to get an inquest, and not just a verdict of unlawful killing, but a full narrative verdict from the coroner about each and every failing by various, you know, under-resourced, etc., etc., public authorities, about why perhaps this man shouldn't have been released. He was, he was on licence, he didn't need to be released, why he should have been supervised, why he wasn't supervised, and so on. That didn't make, that didn't make the front page. But there are umpteen other cases 
of human rights protection working for victims, not just all over the world, but in, but in Britain too. Another aspect of the suggestion that, that, that human rights is just for bad people and guilty people is, the, to some extent, the elephant in the room in this debate. And this is the fact that bad people, and terror suspects in particular, cannot be deported to places of torture. You can't run away from this. The rule against torture and inhuman and degrading treatment is absolute. It's an ethical value, and now, thanks to the Convention and the Human Rights Act, it's a legal value as well. Now, you can unpack this and have the, have the debate, but I think it's worth looking back into history as to why the drafters of this convention, who didn't decide that the right to life was absolute, decided that the right against torture and inhuman degrading treatment was particularly special. Now, firstly, they weren't pacifists because they fought and lived through World War II. And, of course, there are other reasons why the right to life cannot be absolute. It's going to take miracles of medicine, not miracles of law, to, to make that an absolute right. And we will all die one day. I don't know about you, but I shall be 250 and surrounded by adoring great-great-grandchildren and have a champagne reception for all of you and others before I go. But, it, but, but we will all go one day and we can aspire to a range of, of, of different, a different deaths, but we don't have to die a cruel and inhuman and degrading death. And perhaps one is forced to take life to save life in some law enforcement situations and in war. And that is playing God. But when you torture someone, you, you play a rather different part. And I don't think it is, in a historical context, a great surprise that the drafters of the convention decided, having seen people come out of Japanese prisoner of war camps and out of um, concentration camps, to decide that some things should not be permissible in a civilised society, at least not under the law. Now, people are prepared to accept that as a proposition, but they find it harder to accept the idea that you would not deport someone or send someone to a place of torture. And I just argue that if it is possible to contract out torture in that way, then the war on terror has taught us how easy it is to look the other way. If, it, it, you know, if de deportation to a place of torture is permissible, why not rendition? Why not send people to places where the rich does not run? Have a nice little international community of people that sign up to these liberal values and then contract out the nasty stuff. That will not work in our shrinking interconnected world. And frankly, in that shrinking world, does it really make sense to send people that you really think are so dangerous off around the world when you really ought to be doing the difficult work of bringing them to justice and putting them in custody. Another argument is that the Convention and the Human Rights Act in particular are completely unnecessary in this great land of Magna Carta. So why have all this nonsense here at all? That is... That was an argument that I think had considerable currency for quite a long time. And, and let me be clear about it and not too facetious. I am um, a human rights campaigner in one of the safest places in the world to do this work. 
I have no physical courage to speak of. People like me are locked up and tortured elsewhere. And, and, you know, the worst that I have to deal with is appearing on, you know, TV programmes and sometimes looking ridiculous. But it's, it's really not the physical courage that's required of people fighting for basic rights and freedoms elsewhere. I would say that one can take pride in that, but no complacency for reasons we've, we've discussed before about how quickly the dissent can happen. I would also point out that there is no right to free speech or indeed to personal privacy in Magna Carta. Isn't that extraordinary? Did you know that? Some of you did. The lawyers did. The police officers did. There was no enforceable right <clears throat> to free expression or to personal privacy in this, the oldest unbroken democracy on earth until the Human Rights Act brought the convention into domestic law. Now that makes us very lucky and I'm very grateful for that <coughs> but everything cannot be left to gentlemen's agreements. Sometimes it is quite important to have legal protection to back up gentlemanly <coughs> tradition. And I do think it's interesting in the context of recent judgments from the Strasbourg Court of Human Rights in particular to note that it took the European Court of Human Rights to decide that blanket indiscriminate stop and search without suspicion under the Anti-Terror Act um, needed revision. That stopping and searching peace protesters was not the same as stopping and searching terror suspects. And I do think it's interesting that when our DNA database, the largest per capita in the world, was considered, even by our own House of Lords before it became a Supreme Court, that many of their lordships didn't even think that privacy rights were engaged at all. Maybe occasionally it does take the perspective of a European court, including judges from younger democracies, to remind us of the dangers of complacency and that holding intimate data like DNA data, though laudable and whilst it may have many laudable objectives, can be an interference with people's privacy and could be used one way or another. And as for this idea that, you know, Parliament will deliver everything and you don't need judges to help, we don't want judicial activism because there's something illegitimate about the, about the dialogue between judges and politicians in a democracy. I would just remind people that it was wicked old unelected judges in this country who first took on slavery and decided, in quite revolutionary terms, that habeas corpus wouldn't just apply to freeborn Englishmen. It would apply to newly arrived slaves. And even in my lifetime, it was unelected judges in the House of Lords who decided, and you could call it judicial activism if you want, you could call it common decency, that decided that a man should not be able to rape his wife with impunity because of the convention that there was no such thing as rape within marriage. So... No, no time ever, I would argue, for complacency, even in a great democracy like ours. But I think the clincher for me 
is proved during the war on terror of the last decade or so, and that is that the common law and all these great traditions and cultures can be overruled by statute. We live in a parliamentary democracy which has parliamentary supremacy as its governing principle, and without a human rights act, the terror suspects who were interned in Belmarsh indefinitely without charge or trial, it's not just that they wouldn't have been released, they were eventually moved on into other systems by the polity. They could not even have had access to argument in court but for the Human Rights Act. Which brings me to the, to the penultimate criticism, that the Human Rights Act allows unelected judges to trump the will of Parliament. Firstly, this is just not true. In contrast with bills of rights the world over, notably in the United States and France and Germany, it goes on and on and on. The nuclear weapon that our judges have in the Human Rights Act, faced with legislation that violates people's rights and freedoms, is something called a declaration of incompatibility. And this is nothing more than a moral or persuasive invitation to the political community to think again. It has no legal or binding effect whatsoever. To use the Belmarsh example, if the government, it was then the Blair government, had decided that notwithstanding the law lord's judgment that it was discriminatory and disproportionate to lock people up forever without charge or trial, notwithstanding that judgment, the executive had a better grasp on national security and they would continue with that policy, they could have done so. Because we still live in a system of parliamentary sovereignty. And it is an exquisite British constitutional compromise, it seems to me, to allow the judges a voice, but to allow Parliament the final word. And those who say they're going to replace the Human Rights Act with a British Bill of Rights and Freedoms should be careful what they wish for. If we're going to move to a written constitution, so be it. If we're finally going to spend years on building cross-party consensus for a written constitution, an entrenched bill of rights with proper strike-down powers, then so be it. But careful what you wish for. And that really would be enhancing the role of judicial power in our, in our constitution. It is, in a way, harder to think of a weaker model of judicial protection of human rights than that that we now have, but it works as long as there is mutual respect and recognition between the different limbs of our state. Are we really saying that those Belmarsh detainees should not even have been able to make an argument in court in the land of Magna Carta? And I say the same about the latest row about media freedom and kiss-and-tell stories. There's an element of, of put up or shut up about all of this. If you don't like the way that the judges are striking the balance between this very, very, and it's a very difficult balance, it's a case-by-case -case balance between personal privacy in a particular case and media freedom. If you don't like the principles they're applying, the way that they're applying these universal principles of free speech on the one hand, and media freedom that has been protected for the first time in English law by the Human Rights Act then come up with a detailed legal regime that strikes a different balance. Good luck to you. Put up or shut up. Do me a favour if you really want to argue that privacy has no place 
in a modern democracy, that you can have secret ballots and free elections, fair trials and confidential counsel, medical privacy, even journalistic freedom without protection for your sources. Do me a favour if you think that you can have any of these other rights and freedoms without some respect for private life. Final argument, people don't like the Human Rights Act. It's unpopular. So we must get rid of it, because we must do a straw poll and we must get rid of it. Well, this is a very interesting final argument. And, but it's, you know, it's a democratic argument on the charge sheet, so let's respond to it. I disagree that people really don't like the Human Rights Act. I think that people love human rights, their own. <laughs> it's other people's that on occasion they have a problem with. My speech is free, ladies and gentlemen, tonight. Well, not quite. Yours is more expensive. And we're getting to that in a moment. We at Liberty have been conducting polling, you know, like the politicians do, of public opinion every few months the last couple of years and we've been working with Comres who are a polling company and every six months we ask people firstly whether they think it's important that there is a law in Britain that protects their fundamental rights and freedoms last time we asked is before Christmas or in time for the 10th anniversary of the, of the Human Rights Act 96% said yes we think it's important that there is a law in Britain that protects our rights and freedoms then we asked them about the individual rights and freedoms that we unpacked from the Human Rights Act, torture, free speech, etc. 95% believe that the right to a fair trial is vital or important. 91% believe that the right not to be tortured or degraded is vital or important. 94% believe that respect for privacy and family life is vital or important. That's better than Britain's Got Talent, isn't it? And yet only 9% remember ever having received or seen any public information from the government or another public authority explaining the Human Rights Act. How interesting. So how do you test public opinion? Do you ask them a question about, do you think human rights has gone too far? Do you think prisoners are getting human rights and that's a bad thing? Well, you may get the answer that you wish for, but guess what? Ask the question a different way. When people start identifying with these rights and freedoms for themselves and their families, you get a different view. And that's really where I come to a conclusion in my defence of the Human Rights Act. Though I have to tell you, it is odd to have to make such a defence. And I wonder what people around the world in burgeoning democracies and non-democracies would think even of this exercise that one should have to make a case for the Human Rights Act in this great democracy of ours. So Stephen made the argument better in his few minutes at the beginning, but someone dear to many of us would have made it better still. The late Tom Bingham spoke to Liberty on its 75th anniversary a couple of years ago. And after setting out the various rights and freedoms of the Human Rights Act, he said this... Which of these rights, I ask, would we wish to discard? Are any of them trivial, superfluous, unnecessary? Are any of them un-British? There may be those who would like to live in a country where these rights are not protected, but I am not of their number, nor me. Thanks very much.